So today we are going to be focusing specifically on living out of abundance. And I'd just like to take a few moments to pray as we get started, and then we'll prepare our hearts um, for our service, but also for this coming week as we move into the holiday of Thanksgiving. Father God, thank you, Lord, so much for this opportunity to come together to seek you, to study your word. And Jesus, we ask right now that the power of your presence, the power of the Holy Spirit would be here with us in our midst, that it would bind us closer together as it binds us closer to you, and that we would continue, Jesus, in many ways to try to seek your face and bring more of your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. We ask all of this in your name. Amen. All right. Well, Jesus has this really wonderful, famous, fantastic verse that we all like to quote. And it's in John 10.10. 10, and it says, you know, the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. And we all love this verse, right? We quote it. We might have it on a bumper sticker or a magnet on our fridge. And we talk about it. But I don't know if we ever really think about what it means to have abundant life. What does it mean to live out of a place of abundance. Because typically, all of us, all of humanity, we tend to choose one or two options. We either live out of an abundant mindset or a scarcity mindset. So we're either living out of a place of, I have this much, and these are things then that I want to give as a result of the overflow of my blessings. And you've met people like this. They have very little, and yet they will be constantly finding ways to have uh, a gratitude-minded heart to speak out of a place of abundance rather than scarcity. It's one of the reasons why it's always such a great idea to take high school kids out of the country to do some sort of service-minded project, right? Because the big thing is, yes, praise God, prayerfully, it won't be toxic charity, which is a great book, and instead you actually do great, great work there. But the thing that typically happens is, I remember going to the Soviet Union when it was the Soviet Union in 1990. Um, it was not a missions trip, but just an exchange program. And I came home thinking, thank God I live where I do. And that's not, I'm not saying that there weren't beautiful and wonderful things, but I recognized the benefit and blessing of democracy because the wall had not yet fallen. I recognized the benefit of a freedom of religion because I had to smuggle my Bible in and people that I was with had never seen one or read one. And so were just things that I was thankful for. I also saw things that were to be deeply admired in the culture and the community. I was primarily in the Ukraine. There were wonderful things. But part of what shifted and shaped me was I came home and thanked my parents, right? It probably lasted for about two weeks, and then I was back to, you know, being a narcissistic teenager. But one of the things that we hope that shifts and changes is that when we encounter persons who may not have as much but they're sharing with us. They're, um, the family I was living with was not very well off, and they were influenced uh, deeply by the poverty that was present in the land at the time. But they shared their meals with me, right? They found ways to, to purchase meat, which was a luxury. And you end up feeling deeply honored and embarrassed in those processes, and you come home thankful. Anybody? Yeah? And you start to live out of an abundance mindset rather than a scarcity one, whereas previously you might have been like, you know, Mom, I don't understand why we don't have a Porsche or a Mercedes or, you know, any of the number of things that kids think that they have to have, this type of sneaker, this type of, you know, whatever it is when you're growing up. Well, we all live our life this way, and not just our life in practical ways. Um, Wow, I always wanted to be married, and now I'm married, and I wish I was in a scarcity mindset again, right? 
just joking. Um, but sometimes people always be looking at everything, the next thing that they need to have, and then forgetting that they had something quite good just before. We also view the world out of this mindset. We view the world with either abundance or scarcity. We view our faith, our God, out of a place of abundance or scarcity. And I don't know if you can see very quickly just this quick thing that was found online. You know, leaders with a scarcity mindset are going to be like, I win, you lose. Whereas leaders with an abundant mindset, I win, you win, we're all going to succeed. And you see people operating in either a competition or stress and frustration, or with confidence and success. They expect bad news. Anyone have a parent that expects bad news? Um, versus expecting you know, high performance and good news. Um, and so in the scarcity mindset over here, this worldview is everything that's needed for future survival and progress is getting scarce or running out, and nothing positive is getting bigger or better. And I just read that and thought, that sounds a lot like political discourse in our nation. Yeah. Right? It sounds a lot like wow, it's never been this bad before. And then there's a whole bunch of people who are like, I think I remember when it was maybe a little bit worse. (laughs) Um, And I'm not just, it's not a political statement, but it's just that we all do this. And it tends to be sometimes when I hear uh, politicians or hopeful politicians and leaders talking, everything is about how bad it is and how bad the other person is, even the other people sharing their stage. It's very rarely a vision a look forward to hope or abundance. We are always stuck in the like, how bad is it? And how terrible is it? And you're bad and you're worse than I am rather than some hope for the future, some engagement into living out of abundance. And as this takes hold within our political discourse, um, last week we prayed about Paris and we prayed about Beirut and we prayed about Brianna's passing. And we tried to find ways in which God was at work in the world and where we might be able to see the arc of his narrative redemptive movement. But then subsequently to the quick, you know, response of let's pray for everything that's going on, a lot of people, including Christian leaders, started drawing lines. And they started saying, these people are out, these people are in. And then the people who are being drawn out were like, no, I think I'm in and you're out. And so everybody on every side of our public discourse starts to say who's in and who's out. And I loved this cartoon by a uh, naked pastor. I don't know who that is. It's not somebody I know particularly. But um, this idea that we're all doing these grids, right? We're all trying to figure out in this closed set, this place of scarcity, here's this thing that I have to protect. And yet maybe we're following a Messiah, a Savior, who's walking in and is erasing those lines. And finding ways in which to bring more people to the table. But when we live out of scarcity, out of fear, we don't often invite people to the table. Because we live in a place of, I only have one apple I can't share with you anymore. I need this one out. I might need it tomorrow. So I can't, or I have 10 apples, but I, I can't share with you my 10 apples because I might need them tomorrow. I don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. I'm living out of fear for tomorrow. Therefore, I can't share what I have. And then there are very many other people who are like, no, I have 10. God has been taking good care of me. All indications are that I will have 10 again tomorrow, let me share nine today, right? And we find people who are willing to live out of abundance of their experience. Abraham Lincoln, back in the 1860s, declared that there should be a day of Thanksgiving. And he did this in the midst of the Civil War. Now, George Washington also talked about Thanksgiving. And it seems that they were 
on to something quite important. Because in the midst of the Civil War, when everything was being torn apart, when things were quite difficult, Abraham Lincoln penned a proclamation, which you're not going to be able to read here and you should read online later, that talks specifically about how things were very difficult, but yet in the midst of difficulties, there had still been blessings. Though there were orphans and widows, there were also crops that were growing. There had also been rain that had fallen. There had also been an abundance to thank God for. And so he declared a day of thankfulness. And we're all moving into that day. This is a very unique American thing. This practice, this discipline of thankfulness and gratitude. And he didn't do it because everything was really wonderful. He did it in the midst of a very deeply painful time in our history when the, when the nation felt very fractured and was indeed fractured, he said, let's sit down and give thanks. There was an article yesterday in the New York Times called Choose to be Grateful, It Will Make You Happier. And it's a fantastic article, and you should pick it up and read it. It's really quick. It was just yesterday. It's by Alfred Brooks. And in that article, Alfred Brooks quotes a study in 2014, an article in the Journal of Social, Cognitive, and Effective Neuroscience. I know you all read it, but let me just sum up for it just in case. Um, That they identified a variation in the gene associated with gratitude. And here it is here. They're talking about it here. They're talking about these different factors of this gene that we have. And he said, well, some people simply have a heightened genetic tendency to experience, in the researcher's words, global relationship satisfaction, perceived partner responsiveness, and positive emotions, particularly love. So that is those relentlessly positive people who you know who seem grateful all the time may simply be mutants. This is what he says in the article. There are people out there who are deeply programmed to be in a place of gratitude. And it might be your gender that helps you figure this out. Maybe females might be more inclined than males. And then we have this oxytocin receptor and the gene. And then we even have early attachment experiences, which for my household, we practice a lot of attachment therapy. And I was like, yes, all right. I'm making it so she will be grateful in life, right? All this attachment stuff early on. And yet also I was comforted when I, when I read this because I thought, oh, so that person who's always so chipper and cheerful, ridiculously so, you know, constantly like everything's like, you know, abundantly blessed in spite of it all. And it's like, oh, that might be genetic, right? Like I might be sitting there thinking, be a realist. It's not all great. Come on. Something's bad. You just lost a significant other. Let's talk about it. It's okay to mourn. But this person might be gifted to be this way by God. Now, for the rest of us who might be saying, I am definitely not having that gene, right? That is not, or my, my loved one or my parental figure does definitely not have that gene. Anyone anticipating Thanksgiving dinner coming with somebody who does not have that gene? Did you ever see Debbie Downer on Saturday Night Live? And if you haven't, you should watch it. It's several years ago, and I'm probably dating myself, but everything's terrible, right? It's the person who'll be like, no, yeah, that is a beautiful sunset. Too bad X, Y, and, you know, 30,000 children a day are dying of hunger or hunger-related disease. And you're like, just was trying to talk about sunset, right? So you have those moments where you feel like, come on, people. So for those of us who don't have this gene or maybe aren't predisposed to this, this is how the article continues. We are more than slaves to our feelings or circumstances and genes. Evidence suggests that we can actively choose to practice gratitude and that doing so raises our happiness. So as you do it, even though you don't feel like it, you'll start feeling like it. 
This Thanksgiving, don't express gratitude only when you feel it. Give thanks, especially when you don't feel it. Rebel against the emotional authenticity that holds you back from your bliss. I love that. Because I feel like so many of us are out there like, well, I'm not going to say that I'm happy or everything's good when it's not. And I'm going to be this truth teller. And I'll just quote my husband. Transparency slash nakedness is not for everyone. Right? I am not going to be transparent slash naked in front of every person that I meet. It's for particular relationships. Not everybody has to hear about the worst thing that just ever happened in your entire life or that you're having a Debbie Downer day, particularly the checker at the store is probably having his or her own Debbie Downer day, doesn't need to hear about the, your woe. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't find places to, to share and talk about this, but I thought it's so fascinating that there's something that the more we share about the woe, the more we're authentic to the process, the worse we feel. Have you ever felt and met persons that are like overly therapied, right? Like every time you meet them, they're processing the next new big, deep, horrible wound. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that, but there's some persons that just feel like, oh my goodness, are you stuck there? Or maybe you felt stuck there. And I know I felt stuck there at times in my life. There's something that if we start to smile, even when we don't feel like it, (laughs) we might actually start feeling like it. That there's some discipline behind gratitude and thankfulness. That there's something that God has programmed in our very nature and being that when we give thanks, and I don't know, there's like a gajillion psalms about this, that when we stop and give thanks, we get changed by that process. And the wisdom of George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and others to say, as a nation, let's stop and give thanks because we'll be changed by that. And it is not to say that there aren't, as Abraham Lincoln's letter says, widows and orphans that need tending to, who've lost loved ones, who've suffered the ravages of this war. But we can still thank God for the food. We can still thank God for the rain. We can still thank God that we're here. We can still thank God that we have this nation. All of these things, it's not to negate the reality, but it's to turn our hearts towards the practice of seeing where God has provided and to not neglect those blessings, to not neglect the thankfulness of those blessings. I just want to turn to Psalm 50 quickly and just summarize for you a few verses here in the psalm. And if you have it, you can look it up or look it up later. And Psalm 50 starts off like this. The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. He says, gather to me a consecrated people. I'm going to proclaim my justice. Listen. And then he says, I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices. All your goats, those are great. Sheep, those are fine. But by the way, I'm not hungry. He's like, if I were hungry... I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that's in it. I do not eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats. So God is saying, I am not interested in your sacrifice. I don't need sustenance. Like, I'm not a God that needs to be fed. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Verse 14. 
Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will honor me. This concept of a thank offering, that you would come before God at various and different portions of your life, in particular even got into the liturgy of the Jewish people in the Second Temple period and beyond, that when certain things happened to you, according to Psalm 107, particularly you survived childbirth or illness, you survived the sea crossing, you uh, were in prison and you got set free, all of these types of things, when that you, all, you survived the desert, whenever those things happened, you better go up to the house of God and say thank you. And you stand before God and you stand up there. It's called the blessing, the hagomel. That you stand and you say, thank you, God, you delivered me from these things. And the current liturgy in Jewish practice is really beautiful. The whole community stands with you and says, thank God you've been delivered. I was teaching this years ago to some fifth and sixth graders. And there was a little girl who said, my dad's getting out of prison on Tuesday. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had a faith tradition where... As he was released from prison, he didn't have to hide. He didn't have to be embarrassed by that. He got to come into the community and say, I just got out of prison. And we had a faith tradition, a liturgy that was like, thank God for that. And we're going to thank God with you that you're here, that you've been restored to our community. These thank offerings that God commands, he's like, it's more powerful than any other sacrifice you can give me. Thank me. Offer up thanks for the things that God has done. It's sort of like... The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. If you just stop there, it's pretty amazing. You don't have to go into the rest of the psalm. Is it enough to say that if God is my shepherd, I don't want for anything? I trust that he's looking out for me. I trust that he's watching over me. I trust that he's providing for me the way a shepherd does for his sheep. That if the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And then that moment, that point moves us to gratitude, moves us to thankfulness. But instead, a lot of times when we talk about faith and when we talk about particularly the Christian discourse and dialogue of faith, particularly this last week in our nation, a lot of things that I hear are not from a place of abundance, not from a place of I have all that I need and what I have I can share. Instead, a lot of it came from a place of be afraid. Be very afraid. We should all freak out, right? I mean, that would have been the entire, in my mind, discourse that I heard this whole week. Freak out, Americans. Your whole way of life is about to change, right? It's all terrible. And then crazy stats, crazy things. And I started seeing the craziest stuff. I'm sure my, um, my friend count on Facebook shifted this week, not because of my own actions, because people, I'm sure, unfriended me. Um, because I started seeing the craziest stuff being thrown up out of fear, out of scarcity. I'm not saying there aren't things to be deeply concerned about and that we shouldn't be practical about realities, but our faith, 80 times in our Bible, tells us fear not. Over 80 times in our text, we are told, fear not, don't be afraid. And we have a faith that starts in that context. Now, there are some memes out there and some people will say, well, actually says fear not 365 times, but these are the only 80 that you really want to apply to you in this context, okay? So it may use the word fear 365 times and and even don't be afraid, but I don't think it's always talking and you would never not always want to be the subject of that sentence, okay? So these are the 80 times that you want to be told fear not. 
So as I started seeing things like this up on Facebook, and this is a picture of some women with the phrase, down with the USA. And the caption underneath, and I've seen this float, you know, floating around Facebook for a couple months, says, um, women in the U.S., you know, recent immigrants slash refugees in the U.S. who are, you know, can't wait to sort of do Islamic jihad here in the U.S. Well, if you just research like two seconds on Google, you can find out that that's not taken in the United States, that it's taken in Tehran, and it's an entirely different context. So what is the person who captions that trying to communicate? Be afraid. Be very afraid. These people are trying to kill you and they're right next door. They're right and your government is inviting them in. Just can't wait to just see these people take over. What? This was the other one. A big line of men. This is in Hungary. On the other side of a chain link fence and the caption underneath, all Syrian refugees, majority of Syrian refugees are male. Male military age. Anybody see this on Facebook this week? Yeah, okay. Um, First of all, there's, uh, that's not true. And um, uh, I'll tell you in a little bit. And there's no actual information with the photo. People are just throwing it up and trying to instill fear. And then those of us who are concerned and afraid, hey, I want to keep my child safe too. I want to keep my home safe too. I want to keep my church safe too. But those of us who, who might be even more inclined to live from that place of scarcity rather than abundance, which let's be honest, we've all been there at different times in our lives, it's easy to have fear and concern when we see these things pop up. But fear is a liar. And our text tells us in 1 John 4.18 that there is no fear in love, but that perfect love drives out fear. So in the midst of a terror attack and in the midst of heartache, France still announced this week that they will still take 30,000 Syrian refugees. Because right after, the day after, Parisians rallied with signs saying, not afraid. And our doors are open. And they chose to live in a place of abundance, to live in a place of overflow of their heart rather than fear. And the things that push us in this way, I mean, this is a choice, right? We go back to the article of the New York Times yesterday. We have to make choices to do this because it is easy to be afraid. It's easy. I am right there with you. And it's easy when things happen, no no matter how minute the percentage and chance, right, to start having those triggers in your own life. I live in a flight path of three major airports, Oakland, San Jose, San Francisco. And there are times when I'm out in the yard with my daughter and I see a plane that looks really low. And you know the first thought is, I hope that's going. Like, that's a thought that I've only had in my head since 9-11. I didn't have those thoughts prior, but those events in my life have triggered now concerns. Now, it's just flying to one of the three airports that I'm right in the midst of and we're all okay. But I feel that thought pop in. And then I have to make a choice. How am I going to live and lean into that and be more afraid and more fearful and be concerned every time I see a plane in the sky? Or am I going to point up and go, look, Phoebe airplane, aren't those cool? And then she says, I want to go there. Let's reach it. I'm like, I know we can't get it right now. So, you know, we have a different conversation 
uh, based upon leaning out of our place of abundance. That the life Jesus wants for us is to live in this abundant life, not fear, not where the enemy comes to steal and kill and destroy. But the truth is that even without this war ever coming to our shores, it's already battling in our hearts for our values, for our way of life, and for whether or not we'll lean into gratitude and abundance and live into the compassion and values of Jesus, or we will lean into exactly what the hope of the terrorists is, fear. Release and, and run from your way of life, Americans, because it's making you vulnerable. You should be afraid like we're going to make you afraid. This is the point of terrorism. I was just recently in Israel for a couple weeks, and as you know, Israel is going through a difficult time with a lot of terrorist attacks, and I was debating whether or not to get on the plane. Now, a couple years ago, I'm not taking my 18-month-old with me. I probably would have just gone on the plane. It was my extended Israeli family, like not by relation, but by relationships. It was the grandfather's 80th birthday. I'm very honored to be invited. It was another, there's a couple big events I wanted to be there for. I'd gotten a great deal on a ticket, like 600 bucks. And when I booked it, there wasn't the terror attacks going on. The night before I'm on the phone with my friends, I'm like, I don't know you guys. Like, I don't, I don't think I'm going. And my, my girlfriend, Sharon, gets on the Skype phone call with me. She's got her one baby seven months old on her hip. And then two other little kids, and they're all climbing, going, Dale, come, come. And she gets on the thing. She goes, you better come. You better come and shine your light, Danielle. This is what the terrorists want. Like, she's yelling at me through this guy. And I'm like, okay, uh, you're kind of scary now, too. <laughs> I'm feeling freaked out about going. I sat in the parking lot of San Francisco Airport with Kevin, sobbing. I sobbed for 10 minutes before I was willing to get out of the car and get on the plane to go. I love Israel, and I love these friends. And I was sitting there go, darn these relationships. Darn these deep relationships that I've worked so hard to build and cultivate that make me want to cross an ocean to go into a place where there's terror attacks. Like, what am I thinking? And Kevin's like, don't go or go. Like, I don't care. You know, just make a decision and go. And I'm like, I think I'll be fine once I'm there. I just don't know. And I'm having all of this stress. So I'm there, and I'm walking around, and it's, eerily silent. People aren't out. I'm sitting at like this nice open air plaza, kind of like Santana Row, and it's me and police. And I'm like, should we not be? Maybe we should go. <laughs> All the coffee. Thank you. Thank you. Like it felt like, oh dear, what am I doing? And I'm watching every car that comes at me and I'm watching every face of any male. And I'm thinking, this is madness. And my dear friends live in the old city where there's been a, a lot of attacks. And they invite me to dinner. And I'm like, are you crazy? I am not. And this is my home. I mean, I lived there. I love these people. And they have beautiful... I'm like, okay. So they said, get in the car, talk to the taxi driver, and tell him to drop you off exactly at this point. We'll meet you and we'll escort you in and it'll be fine. Okay, okay, I get in the car. No taxi driver ever wants to drop you off at this point. He doesn't either. He's pretending he doesn't speak English. It's great. I'm using my few little bit of Hebrew. It's kind of working. I'm like, fine, fine. Just drop me off at Jaffa Gate. I'm still a little bit stressed. And I'm walking. And I start to think, this is home for me. This is the place. These are the people that I love. I think we're going to, and as I walked the way I always walk and not the way to be afraid. And as I walked by myself and I didn't ask for the escort, you all think I'm crazy. It was fine. And I felt as with every step more of who I am. 
And I realized in that moment, I had been letting fear win. It's exactly what is wanted in these battles for our hearts and for our faith. And it's a simple thing, but it did feel very powerful to walk in there and say, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm walking with my Savior, and I'm not afraid. And that's not to say that bad things aren't going to happen, because they do. But I'm choosing to live and lean into my values and lean into my faith and lean into the way of my Messiah rather than the different values that are trying to shape this world. Spark is a church that is founded on these five values. All five values we see in the life of Jesus. All five values that we see throughout all of scripture. You can read about them on our page. This is what we're shaped by. And if you read them, you know exactly what we believe and why we're acting the way that we act. Because this isn't an accident. Our church is not an accident. We're shaped by these values. By love, by reputation of God, by reconciliation, by rescue of this world, and by resurrection. We believe in these things. Now, this last week, the director of emergencies, Peter Buchert, I don't know exactly how to say his name. He's a graduate of Stanford Law, but I think he's European-born. He is the director of emergencies for Human Rights Watch, and he was being interviewed about ISIS and ISIL, and he's the one who first tweeted the picture of the little boy washed up on shore. He's in it. He says, the United States values are built about being welcoming to refugees. Our values are the most powerful tool in the war against Islamic extremism. It's not our military planes and our bombs. The only way we can fight against this brutality, this barbarianism, is with our values. And if we're going to shut the door on these refugees, we're giving a propaganda victory to ISIS. I think that's exactly why they left a fake Syrian passport at the scene of their attacks, because they would love it if we shut the door on the people who are fleeing their so-called Islamic caliphate. And when I heard that, I was like, yes. Are we shifting our values as people of faith? Are we going to change our values because of our fears? And I love this, right? Jesus saying, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. But Jesus, what about if they're Muslim? Okay, I'm going to start over from the beginning. Let me know where I lost you. (laughs) Right? Are we going to change our values of Jesus's teachings in our lives? Are we going to change what he's taught us to be be and to become in this world? Are we going to shift away from the things like rescue and resurrection, the belief that new life is possible now and in the world to come? Are we going to shift away from the primary command of the Bible, which is to love God and to love your neighbor and to love your enemy? Are we going to run away from our desire to elevate the reputation of God because we're too afraid? And instead, the reputation of Jesus took quite a beating this week. Are we willing to do the hard work of reconciliation, of interfaith reconciliation, of racial reconciliation, the ministry of reconciliation that Christ himself has called us to and modeled for us as he has reconciled us unto the Father? Are we running from that because it's hard or because it's scary? Or are we people who are his disciples? And I know it's not easy or popular for churches or pastors to get involved in this. And, and for many years, I understood like that. Let's just be quiet on these issues and like try to just focus on the love of Jesus thing. And I'm just letting you know, I cannot talk about the love of Jesus thing without talking about this because it's hard in my life too. And here's the thing. We got you into this. 
spark. We're really sorry, but you know, when this whole refugee crisis really took into the news, and we'd been talking about it and following it for some time, but a few months ago when it really took hold, we set before you a goal of $10,000 for World Vision to help the world, to help with the refugee crisis. And you guys exceeded that goal to $27,000. And that goal has now, that amount has been matched six times by USAID, so it's gone six times $27,000. You did that. So we got you into this. And we apologize. Because now, um, different things could be harder in your life as a result. Well, to have you all here today. I am thankful that I only burned the turkey a little bit. I'm sorry, <laughs> gang. You know, I am thankful that our governor is not going to let those refugees in here. Oh, my God. You know, I heard the refugees are all ISIS in disguise. Oh, yeah, that's true. I actually saw an ISIS in the A&P today when I was picking up the yams. No, you didn't, Aunt Kathy. That was an Asian woman. (laughs) You know what? I have a question for you. Why is it that your friends keep antagonizing the police? Why would you ask my boyfriend that? Well, I'm just trying to get to know Jamal. That's very sensational. Oh, oh, it's me. I was wondering if after all these years you'd like to me to go over everything. They say the time's supposed to heal ya, but I ain't done much. Oh, your grandparents are here. How was the flight? Oh, it was good. Good. I saw two transgenders at the airport. They still look kind of pretty. Very interesting trend, this. Oh, my God. Transgender is not a trend, Mr. Paul. And there weren't any around when I was younger. Yeah, they were there, but they couldn't say anything, so they lived sad lives and died. No, talking about... Oh, yeah. 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 To vote for Ben Carson. You are such a. Many of us, 
We're all anticipating Thanksgiving this Thursday, and some of us may or may not have family around the table for whom you already know based upon Facebook posts or long-forwarded 16,000 times emails that you've gotten from, you know, one or two family members that there could be a heated discussion, right? Anybody else have a heated discussion around the Thanksgiving table ever? So we're not going to say that maybe Adele will be your solution, um, although that was a great sketch from SNL last night. Um, <clears throat> But what we will provide for you at Spark, since we did get you into this, and I'm praying that you'll be equipped to deal with the myths, is that we're going to make our Welcome Refugees page that's been a teaching a full page onto the Spark website, and we're going to be constantly updating it with myths that you might need to address and things to backdate that. So most Syrian refugees are young men. Fact is, most Syrian refugees are women and children. And we'll give you the UN numbers on that, and you can respond if you want. Now, typically at a Thanksgiving meal, it might just be best to shelve that conversation for the Facebook post later on. Uh, But I don't want all of you who have extended your hearts in compassion and sacrifice and love and in discipleship of Christ to feel ill-equipped to respond to some of the things that are being said, particularly as people of faith, particularly as people who who are claiming Christ. The refugees are a threat to U.S. security, but actually they're the innocent victims of violence and terror too. They're the ones that have survived things over and over again, tons and tons of times worse than Paris. And they're trying to flee that. The refugee screening process isn't rigor enough, but it's actually the hardest way to come to the U.S. And it's incredibly rigorous. And very, very few people get to come to the U.S. as a refugee. But the things that are being said out there make us fearful. And whenever you hear something that causes you to be afraid, do a little research. Do a little reading. Find out if you should be afraid or not. I mean, if you should be afraid, then let's all get legitimately freaked out, all right? And we will write our legislators and have them take appropriate action. But if we are simply afraid because of misinformation, because of xenophobia, because of um, a desire for political gain because people want to do anything for a vote. Who knows? Either side, both sides, by the way, both sides. I'm not registered with either party. That's not a reasoned conversation for people of faith, you guys. Jesus talks about how there will be wars and rumors of wars. We are the people who are called blessed are the peacemakers. We need to find ways to bring about peace and change. To that end, tomorrow at noon, there will be an online live webinar by the Global Immersion Project confronting the refugee myths. And we'll be participating in that as Spark Church, gathering that information and making it available to you. The link is also available on the Spark Facebook page, and I will be um, listening in. And this is the second webinar that they've provided on the refugee issue, and they're very informative. And it's faith-based. It's very helpful. Okay. One last thing I'd like to help us all with before we get to our Thanksgiving meal where somebody talks about how they saw an ISIS at the A&P. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And for those of you who are familiar with the text, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Because ultimately, it doesn't really matter entirely what our legislators are saying what the news media might be saying, what Facebook says. Ultimately, what matters is what Jesus says, and this is what he teaches. 
a teacher of the law comes and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, what's written in the Torah? And he replies, how do you re-? he asks, well, how do you read it? And the teacher of the law says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. But wanting to justify himself, he says, later Jesus says, correct, do this and you will live. Wanting to justify himself, the teacher of the law says, and who's my neighbor? So Jesus answers with this parable. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead, dying. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to the inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him when I return. So he's going to come back again. I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert replied, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, very quickly, this parable takes place. By the way, it's a story, right? It's not a real thing. So if you go there and they say, here's the inn of the Good Samaritan, that's not a thing, okay? I mean, there is really a place that people have decided is the inn, but that's not how, it's a parable. It's a story Jesus tells. Okay, but he does place it in a very specific place and for very important reasons. So as he is there, he's talking about they're coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. So not going up to the house of God, they're coming down, they're moving away from it. Here is the road. It was well known in Jesus's day. It's well known today. It was well known during Mark Twain's day, that this road was difficult and the most dangerous road that you could be passing on in the area, but the easiest way to get up to Jerusalem from the Dead Sea area. And this is uh, my group. We're hiking on this road, Wadi Kilt, down from Jerusalem area down to Jericho. Now, I don't know if you can tell, but there is a pretty good sheer cliff this way and a pretty high cliff up that way. So first of all, Jesus is a comedian, right? Because he says, they passed by on the other side. Well, uh, the path is not wide. It's about this wide. There is no other side to pass by on. So as they're passing by on the other side, what are they doing? They're going like this over the guy that's dying. So he sets this story up. Everybody in Jesus's day knows. And by the way, these are places where robbers would hide. And they were still doing this. And actually, it's still happening. Just a few years ago, I was leading a tour and I got a call that said, please don't take your people because there have been some incidents on the road. So with just robbers, because there's no place to go. You get stuck. It's, it's infamous for this type of thing. So Jesus sets the story there. And everybody knows the story and he hear, everybody knows the place. They can imagine the story. And they can also imagine it because he is recalling a portion of your text in Second Chronicles 28 where Samaritans and Judeans, both descendants, both Israel, were fighting the people, the Israelites up in Samaria and the Judeans. And the Judeans had been captured by the Israelites in Samaria and were being brought back. And then a prophet speaks against them and he says, you better take them back. And so convicted the Israelites slash Samaritans from Samaria, put them on donkeys, healed their wounds, clothed them, and sent them back to the city of Palms, to the city of Jericho. So when Jesus tells this story, he is causing everyone in his community to not just know, oh yeah, that's a scary road. I don't like to go down that road. It would totally happen that somebody would be lying there dying as a result of robbers. He's also saying, and don't forget the guy that heals the Samaritan who everybody in Jesus's day hated. By the way, the Samaritans hated the Judeans, the Judeans hated the Samaritans, and 
The Judeans had desecrated their temple and destroyed it, and the Samaritans desecrated their. I mean, it's, it's all like a big mess. Jesus reminds them that they're actually family. That the other is their brother. And he pulls it straight out of text and context. So this was something I saw this week that made me happy. These guys are not the heroes of the story. This is the hero of the story. You want to be this guy. This is the guy you're aiming to be. And at the bottom, it said, um, governors, this is the guy you're trying to be, right? Because I don't know if you noticed, but the, the vast majority of governors, which, by the way, they don't have any constitutional right to say this, uh, legal right to say it, but the vast majority have said that they won't welcome refugees into their state are, happen to be also matched right with the Bible Belt. And I'm so deeply hurt by that because I don't believe that this is the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is, it, it's hearkened right at his birth when the angels are showing up over and again and they have to keep saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Yeah, this is going to change everything, but don't be afraid. Mary, don't be afraid. Joseph, don't be afraid to take her home. Shepherds, don't be afraid. There's good news coming. And we are people who believe that the light of Christ shines brighter than the darkness. But this week, we have trembled as a result of the darkness. But we can shine brightly. This is the story that I want you guys to remember when somebody pushes up against you and says, I can't believe your church is welcoming these refugees, is working hard, is raising money to help them. for food and for shelter and for safety. This is our faith. Our faith commands us. Jesus calls us and calls us to an abundant life. One that lives out of this abundance and not scarcity and fear. One that says, welcome in the stranger, the foreigner, for you were once foreigners and strangers in Egypt. Our faith is not debated on this issue. This is not a debatable issue with Jesus. He's clear. So we will do our best as our community, as we see that all five of our values are reflected in this issue the need to live out of a belief of resurrection, the need to, be, to believe that we can bring rescue in this world as, as disciples of Jesus. All of this, we're going to live out of a place of abundance on this issue. And we are in conversation with World Vision. Our church has been wonderful and influential, and they are talking about getting us on a vision trip to Lebanon to visit children who are living and benefiting from your donations in the refugee safe schools. And we're talking about, I have some good friends who are volunteering on the island of Lesbos in Greece where the refugees are arriving. It's upwards of 170 boats a day, 170,000 refugees a month, and, about, and, and hundreds of boats a day. And 
people coming across continually and they're arriving cold, wet, sick, and in desperate need of help, and there's no official government response on that island. It's all being manned by volunteers. And we're talking, I have some friends there right now volunteering, and we're talking about can spark come? Can we send blankets? What can we do? Where can we go? And I truly believe that if we live out of a place of abundance on this issue, and I'm not suggesting in any way that we're not smart about it, that we're not winsome about it, that we don't, we don't apply appropriate intellect to the process, but shaped deeply by the discipleship of Jesus, we'll live differently and we'll make different choices. And maybe there's places where our church maybe in partnership with Etz Chaim. So Jews and Christians coming together and going together and working together to help extend the hands and feet of Jesus on our part to the Muslims and the Christians coming over. Isn't that a wonderful story to shape our community and to shape our area of Silicon Valley where 95% plus don't do anything faith-based a weekend at all? And you all are here, and we're small, but we're awesome. You guys are incredibly resourceful and amazing, and I think we can do great good. Great good. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, Lord, so much for being clear. And though we are afraid, we also hear your call to fear not, to trust you. Jesus, you are trustworthy. We can trust you with this. And we can lean into your call of compassion and love and sacrifice and forgiveness. And that we can clearly follow your commands with your great help and with the help of everyone in this room and beyond. That we can grab arm in arm and we can start to express the love and faithfulness of Jesus to people in such desperate need. That the world may know that you are God. Please lead and guide us in this process. We don't know where we'll end up in it. And if all that you do, Lord, is continue to motivate us through our financial giving, God, we pray that you would multiply that again and again, like the loaves and the fishes, to bless those so deeply in need. Bless the hands and feet of those already there on the ground, whether through world relief or through the rescue committees or through the boats that are there and saving people off the waters through World Vision, through so many agencies and organizations. Bless the people trying to help God and bless all of our political leaders, the ones we like, the ones we don't like, the ones that we don't ever want to see again. All of that, Lord. Bless them. And God, we pray that you would cause our enemies to come to know your love and your grace and to become agents of love and grace in this world rather than fear and terror. Thank you, Jesus, for teaching us, and we bless you, God, for all that you're doing. In your holy name, amen.